Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 29 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. In today's episode we will revisit Arne Kutz, who not only teaches mounted fencing, jousting, archery on horseback and garotcha work, but who can teach any form of practical riding, where the foundation is a maneuverable horse in balance. After all, the aim of historical dressage is to keep the horse healthy, brave, collected and ready for any challenge. The last time I interviewed Arne, I felt I was missing a really important part of his philosophy, and that is how he not only manages to ride a new horse in a tournament after merely one ride the day before, but how he seems to be able to bond with horses so quickly. And for sure, I was also very interested in his perspective on how to build a strong, long-term, rock-solid relationship with his own horses. So, um, do we need any preparation before this talk? I think I'm going to pick up some of the stuff you said on this weekend. Uh-huh. But the major thing for me is that after our previous interview, there was one thing that I was like, "This time I need to do, you know, dig deeper into this mm-hmm. particular part of the interview," and it had to do with the re- relationship with the horse, mm-hmm. very specifically. Um, yeah, maybe we can just talk about it for real, mm-hmm. yeah, like we are starting for mm-hmm. real. Should okay. we do that? Okay, yeah. sure. Go ahead. Okay, Arne, so we are we are back for another interview here in Norway. I'm really glad I am back because I really enjoyed last time. Yeah, did you enjoy this time as well? This <laughs> is, you know, we're into uh, the Saturday and it's uh, tomorrow on Sunday we're doing the second day of your clinic. Yeah, I always enjoy coming to Norway. I mean, I suppose it's one of my uh, places that I go to uh, the longest and the most often, I suppose. Um, and so there's a bunch of people that have just uh, come to very many uh, clinics, which is uh, a privilege um, that that they think it's still worth their while, but also it's a privilege to be able to um, help them along over a longer process. And uh, yeah, there was one or two that I really enjoyed to see just, you know, things blossom and I, I enjoy seeing things to blossom and uh, that's just lovely. So um, from this, um, let's just start by this this day this Saturday uh, at the clinic. One of the things that I really like about you is that you push the rider, but you don't really push the horse. Interesting that you put it that way. I think you did. Oh, yeah, well, it's 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 a way of, of, of the divine push, of course. Um, I like to try and challenge the horse to offer more and give the rider responsibility to... Yeah, be better by being out of the way. So, you know, we used to say this thing, it's very German. Gutes Reiten heißt das Pferd nicht mehr zu stören. So, good riding means that you stop disturbing the horse. And, you know, this is something that we literally had as an introduction to the show when I was working in Bukeburg. So, you heard this every day, every day. And it was this one of these things that I found important to tell everybody just get out of the way because you're the problem. And, um, largely, that is that already solves a multitude of things, and then of course there's a few things left that we didn't get to work on. Um, so yeah, I suppose that means that I push the rider a bit harder in that sense, and it's nice if the horses start quote unquote pushing themselves. If that, <laughs> that makes sense, it's, and it also sounds nice. I mean, and it's made, it makes perfect sense. Um, and I also like the fact that uh, one of the things that I heard you say frequently uh, to the horse 
uh, is bless him or bless her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do say that. <laughs> yeah, you do say that. Which it's, it, it's not so common and I really, really like it. It's, it's one of these things is that you sometimes see a horse um, trying to make sense of things or trying to work constructively and maybe not always quite get the thing we were wanting them to understand. But it's kind of an obvious thing to, for them to, to think about. It's, some, it's, it's kind of like, oh, I see how you got into that idea. wasn't what we meant. But it's up to us to find a different way to say it so that you do understand. But, you know, it's, it's nice of you to have tried to see what we meant. And I think that's when I use it the most. Yeah. Um, it's also just sometimes you see horses going a step beyond. You know, we want to transition, I don't know, a transition from walk to trot. And then they give you a transition from walk to canter. You go, oh, well, they're, they're going a step beyond of what we even asked. And then we need to be clear that there is a limit to what we actually wanted, but they might have understood, I'll just give you more. Well, that's not bad, is it? And then, you know, fair enough. So that that is something you see a lot. Or I think I've used it, if I try to think back, for instance, also horses that they're very desperately tried not to buck because they knew they were liable to do so and tried to avoid the situation that that might happen. And they, they think that far ahead which I think is very nice of them. I, I, I just see it a lot. They, they seem to very clearly do that kind of stuff, and I, I, I really appreciate it of the animals. I mean, isn't that nice? I think it, yeah, I think it's really nice that it gets appreciated, you know? Because it's, I think, uh, a lot of the times when you said bless him or bless her, uh, maybe another trainer would not really notice what happened. And that's one of the things I really like about you, that you see the, you see, you see and really appreciate the try in the horse. Yeah, yeah I suppose. But I, I know that I'm not the only one because I have a few colleagues and I know that they think the same way. They might just not express it the same way, but that doesn't mean they don't. I mean, I'm not, I'm not alone in those things, I think. Yeah, but isn't it, you know, if you, if you know what you're talking about, isn't it obvious that that kind of stuff happens? No, I would say so. But I think, you know, I see a lot of trainers and, and some people notice and really appreciate it and, and some people don't. And today I, I would say I really noticed the fact that you, yeah, you did say it, say it on many occasions that I really, I just really like it. I think it's, oh. I think we need to be more appreciative. Oh, thank you. I, I wasn't really realizing I said it that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you also talked about, uh, you said, um, a roadmap in subtle stuff. <laughs> Oh, context. Why did I say that? Um, so I, I dis refer to subtle stuff because I was looking at um, smaller adjustments of all sorts of exercises. So you can make a list of exercises and which one you should do first and last or whatever. And then we call some of them basic and some of them advanced. And I think that distinction is almost entirely ridiculous frankly. And um, the thing is that there is things that are fundamental and thereby around all the time and they need to be addressed all the time. And sometimes you can address them working and walk in something really simple. And then once you get to the canter, you've already done, you can just continue and the horse is already with you and it, and thereby it is easy and thereby you've done the quote unquote basics. 
But it's not necessarily because you did it in an added exercise. It is because you did this fundamental thing that always needs to be addressed. Once you start addressing those things, there's a lot of little subtle influences you take on the horse all the time that take a lot more proprioception, for instance. If you want to distinguish between the front and the back of your seat bone, you need to realize that there's different muscles attached to different places. You need to kind of feel how to move your body that way. That is more subtle in that stuff. So a roadmap in subtle stuff is to be able to understand how how to prioritize these things. What do I introduce? What do I need to tell the horse? What do I need to tell myself? And the horse already knows. And, and kind of work through your decisions on exercises, decisions on when to do a transition, for instance, through correlations within the subtle parts of the aids, the sub parts of each aid, if you will. So then it gets just more, more, more finely tuned to what we had already discussed. And hence, I think I was referring to, well, we've done all the crude descriptions and we're getting more and more into the more in-depth descriptions, if you will. And also, I had a, um, an in- interview with Jeff Sanders, and you guys know each other fairly well. Good friend, yes, yeah. very good friend. And um, you both talk about music, rhythm, the feel of the horse in a very nice way, I think. Oh, I didn't realize. We've done a few a few clinics together, not very many, because it's tricky to arrange, but... Um, and it's kind of funny to see how he describes something in a slightly different way that I do, but you can see that he's trying to get the same point across. And it's nice to do this in two ways because it, it, it makes it easier for the student. Um, but I, I don't necessarily know all these things that we apparently do the same. It's really funny. Um, but music, I think I, I refer to music, especially when I think somebody's has affinity to music. Um, I refer to dancing when I think somebody has affinity to dancing and so forth. I have literally used um, fighter pilot maneuvers for fighter pilots to understand their riding better because I knew they had an affinity to that kind of work so I could find uh, analogies and I could find correlations or or, uh, parallels. And uh, so I try to find the reference frame of the student. So music is, is core to many people's lives, so thereby it's an easy thing to refer to. And the um, the core of the reason, I mean, the reason why I wanted this interview and, and to talk to you again was that sometimes when I have interviews that take a day or two after the interview, I've, you know, kind of edited the interview and listened to it, and then I'm thinking, wow, this is, you know, we should have dug deeper or or, you know, talked more about this particular part. And the particular part I really want to talk to you about is the relationship with the horse, the connection. In the interview, you mentioned a specific situation where you were in the tent with the horse and there was a lightning striking a building ne- you know, ne- next to you guys. Um, and how the horse looked to you for guidance in the situation. And you also talked about a parade in Spain where you rode a horse that was not your horse. Mm-hmm. And it was firework that was out of control and, and kind of, you know, in between the horse's legs. And you kind of kept the connection with the horse. And I really want to dig into how you get there with a horse of your own and with a horse you do not know from before. If you talked about a technique or a way of thinking. And, uh, and I would really love to hear you elaborate on that. Right. Um, it is something that goes in different levels, of course. I mean, you don't always get it the way you like it. And the, and I, I find it important to state state that up first because it becomes this 
it shouldn't become a virtue signal. It's it, it's so important that it's just something you look for, but also if you have some of it, you can be happy with that, and then it might get better, or you get better, get it better next time, and that's okay. Um, so just to have mentioned that up front, but um, this is something that I had to develop, I think, because of uh, working as a uh, an international jouster. So I was asked to fly across the world to do jousts in random places. So, huh? so, so riding at each other in armor with lances on some random horse that they have for you. Now, the problem across the world with this kind of activity is that there's basically too few horses. So they found one that probably will do it, but they don't necessarily even know yet because, you know, everybody's on their own horse and they have this one extra one for the guest how well do they even know that animal? Where did it even come from? And this can be very random. So, and quite often there's very little time um, that this animal is on site or that you get to work with it. It's not uncommon to have one ride before the show starts, before you have to get into costume and that, that everything else. And what can you do in that ride? So it's, if you have a bit more time, uh, that does happen as well. Um, then people often try to make the best of it out of a sort of a competitive drive and, and push the horse to try and improve it somehow from what, how you were given it. And this, I started noticing that this tends to mean that the horse wants to, usually weekend, you know, during the competition, it stops performing quite so well. It starts better and then gets worse. And then I noticed a correlation just, you know, and I was really not that, that good yet. That the more people try to improve the horse, the more the horse would deteriorate. And the more people just kind of look, go like, I assume this horse does everything it needs to do. Can I accommodate its doing its job and just try to be as little of a burden as I can? And those horses tend to improve during the weekend. And this meant that I started looking for that purely out of a sort of a naive thought that I was just not good enough to really make a difference in such, such a short space of time. And I did this for a while and a bunch of horses as the time went on. And then later on, I, it, it, uh, it was told to me that these horses weren't actually that prepared as I thought they were. And because I just kind of assumed that they could do X, Y, and Z, they did X, Y, and Z. And I was really happy with them and I just kind of appreciated it and maybe reward them a little bit. And then everybody was very happy that the horse had been taught by me X, Y, and Z. And I kind of go, I never taught it anything. I just did it. And that made me understand a lot more about accommodating rather than pushing, forcing, you name it. And so that that is part of it, is just simply getting out of the way is a very powerful tool to make some horse understand something. That's still very technical. That is still very you know, down to earth. And then there's also this other thing is that these situations can be quite overwhelming for new animals. I mean, there's loud music and what have you, flags flapping around, you, you name it. To the point that they can be so overwhelmed that they kind of start becoming really calm all of a sudden. Now, that's not when they're giving in. That might be when they need your help the most. And um, I started noticing this kind of thing within the behavior of the animals more and more because when I started I was a really novice when it came to animals really novice so I had to really find this out over years and then you start noticing like actually maybe I can help maybe I can carry this horse through and of, of late I try to 
describe it as the embrace in a in a dance you know when a good leader embraces a novice dancer a follower um that can really help to encourage somebody to get some confidence and to build flamboyance in the dance as they feel supported and put back into balance you know you help them find their way and then they start start expressing themselves even though they're very novice at the dance and when they can start expressing themselves, this this follower of your dance, then I feel as a leader that I'm really starting to do my job. And I started noticing that this was something that I, I started feeling in, especially those horses, especially in certain situations like that, where you encourage the horse to grow. It feels like they grow under you quite literally. And then they start moving better. And more easily, more predictably, you know better what's going on. It's easier to make smaller adjustments, leave them more freedom, but it's a deliberate freedom. You, you can go forward, but not go back. And the horse knows in advance, so I don't need to, it doesn't need to feel my aids. It already is going the right way. We're already on the same track. And um, then to come back to the technique, I think the obvious thing to mention is the old Italian concept of unificare to unify the horse up into the saddle. That is how they literally write it. There's several mentions of this, um, but where you make the horse grow up into the saddle or, or lift its posture up into the saddle and thereby, of course, get a better connection to the animal. Not to be confused with also lifting the inside specifically for canter so that uh, uh, there's a distinction in the bend, but there's just sort of this general lift. And then they have... It gets very technical, but there's like the lifting of the wither and there's lifting of the loin and there's lifting of all of it generally to come to your seat. And that is the unificare is this very general, the horse is coming to get this, the, 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 the seat aids specifically. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to translate, but it's probably a little bit more of my interpretation there in there. It might not be so literal, I must admit. But it's something that I really feel is very useful to do in that sense. To help the horse to lift to your seat. Yeah, to invite the horse to your seat upwards. I suppose this is, literally speaking, the opposite of sit deep. But in a way, I always think that this is what is meant when people say sit deep, because the depth of the horse comes up to your seat, if that makes sense. So the horse comes to you rather than you go to the horse. But you get a connection. Um, but in doing so, the animal, of course, has a different biomechanical freedom in being up already. It has thereby various performance opportunities. It can put its haunches better under. It can have a longer wither. It can be longer in the neck, yet have all that control. There's lots of very down-to-earth biomechanical advantages. But also the horse is invited to come to know what you want of it. And it can go away from you. It can leave. At least it can go down a couple of inches again. It can hollow itself out, if you will. Sounds a bit worse, but it's, it's, it's kind of the same. It has ways of avoiding you if it really wanted to. Now, And there's ways of them making it go up that, is, that exists, but you don't have to use it. And that is the beauty. I can make the horse come to me if I need to in an emergency. I know how to do that. I'm quite prepared to do that, but I don't seem to need to do that. And I really like that. 
and and and, and uh, there's a way of using especially curb bits to make this happen and uh, a few other things and and it, uh, that sounds a lot harsher than it even is but even that is not necessary if you know how to do it with your seat and that means that you have a the the middle of you or close to the middle of the rider is very close to the middle of the horse it's very connected and that means that the movement can start from the middle of you and the middle of the horse and then go towards the extremities and this kind of allows you to um, control movements at their very beginning biomechanically speaking and this has to do with or at least that's how i understand it and that has to do with the concept of proximal distal movement or at least i think it does might be wrong maybe. or right i don't know <laughs> i can't say for sure but it feels to me like that so it seems like a combination of getting out of the horse's way helping the horse to to carry himself better which make them feel safer mm -hmm. and there seems to be a trust thing that you trust the horse to to know what to do yes and i'd like to elaborate on that trust thing because there, it goes on from there. So yes, there is a sort of a general saying. You can say you can trust him. You can leave him a bit of leeway, and thereby trust that that he that he doesn't take advantage, run off with you, so to speak. So you allow the horse to accelerate a little bit, and then he doesn't, and then he's exactly at the speed you asked for. If I keep hold to try and always be a little bit on the brakes, then at some point they actually push against it. I mean, this is a fairly common no known thing, but it goes to so many different parameters. So you leave a little bit of leeway, but you also have a different input. You feel better what is going on. Can you feel the footfall of your, of your hind leg of your horse? Well, that's kind of important, but it goes beyond. Can you feel where the toe is pointing? Can you feel whether it landed on the heel of the hoof or on the front of the hoof or flat? Can you feel that? So can you improve the detailed nature of what you feel you're doing? And this is correlations and things like that. But the thing is that the more the horse is up into your saddle, the more direct the motions are and thereby the easier it is to learn what they all mean. And thereby you're more aware. The more aware you are, the better you can make decisions earlier and thereby before the horse needs more adjustment because it never goes away from, call it a balanced state, uh, as much. So it's easier. This is something very similar to what you do in dancing. The better you feel what your, your dance partner needs, the earlier you do something about it, the more subtle it gets. And they might not even realize that you've helped them. All the better. And, and that allows them to grow and, and express themselves. And um, where it becomes, you know, if you dance really well, it becomes unclear who led a certain movement. You just did something nice together. And that's when you really enjoy the dance. And now, this can happen within riding as well. And this, again, is a sort of a mutual constructiveness that goes hand in hand with trust. And um, the postures that go along with this level of detail, of feeling, of ability to control so happen to also empower the horse within its own feeling. So you notice that the horse feels much braver, just reacts to the same things in very different ways. You know, if, uh, if a horse is first time seeing fire, when it's up in the back, it's much more likely to stay with you. If it's down in the back, it's much more likely to get startled and run and things like that. My wildly different statistics, so to speak. So it's very clear. Um, so this, it's like a power position, if you want to, say it that crudely if you will 
So if I put the horse in a power position, what I need to do to get that is my power position, which makes me feel more confident about myself. In fact, I need to be somewhat confident about myself for my horse to trust to get into this position and then become more confident about itself. So it's about um, empowering the rider to be able to empower the horse so that we can actually ride. I mean, ride with a capital R, shall we say. And this goes so deep into how they trust, how they expect things to develop. Do they think like, well, this is nice, but it's going to go wrong in a second. Or they go like, this is nice and it's probably going to get better. I just don't know how yet. You want that second case that they expect that you will keep giving them new improvements, new things to enjoy. Or are they waiting for the moment that they're going to be punished again? Now, that's, the last thing sounds really, really evil when I say it like that. But it's so easy to accidentally fall into that, even when you don't mean to. And uh, punishment can be all sorts of things. You know, it's like the, the one thing your parents once said that you were really disappointed by it might not even be that nasty a phrase, but it meant something to you because the, your parents meant something to you and thereby you remember this 30 years later, right? And this can be something like that with horses as well. And again, we can worry about this all, all, we, all we need to, but you can kind of become so constructive by thinking ahead by... by um, like you're driving, <laughs> forget the word, sorry. That's okay. Uh, um, you can become so constructive by anticipating that you can kind of solve the issue before it occurs. And that makes the horse feel very confident in your judgment. And then they start assessing their world around them differently. They become less reactive and more proactive because you became proactive as opposed to reactive. So all of those things combined is just yeah, empowering the horse by means of dance, really. I think we're fundamentally dancing whether we like it or not. We might be doing it well, we might be doing it badly, but that is fundamentally what riding is, I think. This was just what uh, I was looking for, Anna. Well. Yeah, but it really was. But it's one of these things that I, I when I say this, I kind of it almost sounds like I'm wanting to make it sound more um, flamboyantly pink roses um, then but I think this is really fundamentally realistically what is going on or what you can use to to make things happen you know it's it's like driving your car well so it lasts long it's almost that down to earth in my head but you notice that the horse appreciates it and then as a result becomes a, a better friend or a deeper friendship grows out of having been nice you know if if you're nice the animal will appreciate you more sure you can give it cookies um but that's not the fundament the fundament is much deeper they they are more mature than just hunting after the cookie sure they can do that they can be spoiled but there is a more deeper level of understanding a social structure between you and, and the horse and stuff like that because they're herd animals and you can you can build on that just like we need to work for our relationship with humans a lot of that is not about the superficial things it's about being there when somebody needs you is a, an obvious thing uh, being reliable, being consistent. It's not about the the turning up with flowers. That is not what makes a really good friendship. I mean, yeah, it's nice, but it's it's not the fundament. It's being a good friend comes from being reliable. 
and being able to take into account the needs of others. So can you take into account the needs of the horse? Short-term, long-term, they might be contradictory. The horse might want this now, but doesn't realize that it's bad for it in the future. Like, you name it, children, whatever. I don't want to go to school, but you should go to school. Yeah, they know what they want, but not what they need. Exactly. And and this is one of these things that you can guide for their benefit, but you need to understand that they might not understand and thereby need to try to f- make them understand. And if they've understood about other points, they might take your word for it because they know that last time you were right. And this is just inter-creature relationship, not necessarily from human to horse. It could be from human to human. Of course it's the same. Right? Why would it be any different? And it's so, you know, it's just try to be a good boss, try to be a good friend, try to be a good trainer is the same i mean just just try to be a good person yeah when you describe it as a dance and and how it is like to be the leader in the dance uh, I, i really like dancing uh, and i have danced with guys who are good dancers and not so good dancers and i always enjoy it but when you dance with a really good dancer then it's a different story because you feel like you say you feel empowered it brings out the best in you And I think with horses as well, when they feel that somebody brings out the best in them, it, you know what's not to like. It's about the follower. The leader is the person who is um, the servant, and the minister, I'd like to call it. And the minister is the head of the department, but minister means servant. So um, in a way, if you, if you lead, um, you're, you're helping someone else have a good dance. Until this starts becoming so melded together... You don't even know who was leading, or you think each other was leading. This was so easy that I wasn't leading. And it is better about yourself rather than who you're supposed to be. And this is goes to the horse as well. The horse needs to be feel better about themselves rather than what they're supposed to be, and thereby being underlined what they're not, or how that's not perfect. Because perfection is abstract, really. You know, it's... Sure, we need to know what perfection in a certain movement needs to be, but we need to mostly know, is it good enough? And then we'd like to improve from there. As long as it stays within good enough, everybody's happy and we can get happier. And uh, there is a too, you know, too bad when it might be detrimental to the animal or things like that in riding. Of course, we need to avoid that. We need to know what that is. We need to know where that boundary lies. But perfection is... A goal on the horizon. It's a direction. We don't ever have to get there. And that is important to remember because otherwise you just beat yourself up over it and maybe even your horse because it's not good enough. I mean, that's, that's yeah, just that makes it not a dance. <laughs> yeah, I think that yeah, one important aspect of it is that it is a journey. Uh, and, and the journey in itself has value. Yes. Uh, and when you talk about the dance where you're not quite sure about who is leading i think that's that's the best rides you get when when it's just like you said unified mm-hmm. maybe not everybody who's ridden horses or ride horses have experienced that moment but if you have then you never forget it because it is it is so pure it's so magical and it's so wonderful to feel that togetherness with horses i think Absolutely. I mean, that, that togetherness is, they talk at the centaur feeling or something. I kind of cliche like 
kind of think of it as the avatar feeling, you know, like when you plug it in. And it, I mean, maybe that's also stupid, just as stupid. It's a cliche. Of course, all of these are cliches, but it, it just to, to describe a certain concept. When it comes to the journey, I'd like to say something about that because a lot of people like that phrase, and, and I do. And, you know, many roads lead to Rome, you know, one of those. Now, let's assume it's a journey to Rome, Rome being perfection. But we might start in the middle of the North Sea, swimming for a life. That's a bad place to be. Then at some point, we reach the beach we managed. And then we get onto the beach, we're onto dry land. And then, but we're still in sort of rainy Holland. But rainy Holland is okay. We're not swimming anymore. And then we can start working away and maybe maybe we get to the Alps and go like, oh, this is actually rather nice. I don't know if I need to go all the way to Rome. And maybe you just have a pause. Maybe you go after all. Maybe you don't. Maybe you never get there. That's not the point. But there is a thing that swimming in the North Sea will eventually not be very good. So you need to get out of there. And that's okay as well. And it's okay to understand that there is sort of the necessary down-to-earth homework part. And then there is the art part that comes after that. Or I say after, but beyond. It's not necessarily even in time. It's, it's this thing like, get it sorted out and then enjoy. Yeah, and but there is a basis to be sorted out. And thereby, the journey shouldn't be taken as an excuse to say things are not there yet. Well, sometimes some things are literally not good enough. Oh, it's only a journey, so I'm still in the rocker phase, and thereby I just still do that. Now, that's not acceptable. You need to be at a certain level, but that level is very obtainable. And then from there, you enjoy further growth as it comes. Brilliant, Arne. Thank you. Is there anything you think that we should have talked about? There's always thousands of things. I'm sure that I will think of things myself afterwards. Two days afterwards. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Then we'll just do another one of these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that. Yeah, but we could do that. Yeah. I, I really enjoy these ones. Yeah, me too, because I um I think you you help people and me myself included to open new perspectives with horses. And I always think that's a good thing. I always think it's funny that people use the word new in that relationship I've, I've heard that the new thinking was something one of my students at some point point called it which I think is really weird because all of this is so old yeah but new to them Arne <laughs> I suppose new to them who, have, who hasn't read all the books well yeah but the, 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 the thing is that you don't need to read all of them you need to read a few of them to notice that it's old and whether it's old or not well maybe it's not the point but I'm really not saying anything that nobody's ever said before I'm really not mm. I think what you do, I don't want to accept that you kind of reduce the value of your work by saying that, because I think what you do is that you make history come alive in the arena, as opposed to being, you know, stuck in some bookshelf or or forgotten in some library. It's it's you bring it to life. Well, that's that's nice of you to say. Of course, part of that is just by by uh, blatantly cherry picking the good bits out of history because not all of it's particularly nice. Yeah, but that's also curating the history. Absolutely, part. but but I know I do, and I I try to pick the bits that are most clean, I suppose, or or most dansant, or you name it. You know, I don't necessarily talk about art that much, but in a way, it's that. You know. Um, 
you you pick the bits you like to make something beautiful because I have the leisure to just do it for beauty and enjoyment. Uh, that that's a luxury not everybody always used to have. You know, if you're bringing the milk around with your horse, that horse needs to bring the milk around, and otherwise you don't eat, including the horse. That is a pressure I don't have. So I can be more, you know, entitled to my artly artiness, which is, you know, I feel a bit guilty about almost. But it's good for my horses. And um, it, it's one of these things where, yeah, I cherry pick and I try to to point out that there was an understanding of how it worked and they knew that there was these nice ways and they knew there was these not so nice ways and they, they distinguished between them but they might need to use a less nice way because they were under pressures that we are not under anymore and then we can use their understanding to choose the nice side because that's what we do it for enjoyment so thereby let's give the horses enjoyment that goes for all of us though I mean at least in this part of the world we don't depend on the horses to survive so so the art is available to all yes it is available to all and i think it is the other thing i, I sometimes fear maybe that's projecting in my understanding but i sometimes fear that people start thinking because somebody calls it art that it's thereby only for the privileged few that have talent or you name it and it really isn't it's doable it's learnable it's obtainable and it's in material if you are better or worse than the next person the only thing is we don't want to be in the north sea swimming and then everything is fine um so you need to be good enough sure but that is obtainable and that means that you can then just enjoy your own progress without having to compare yourself to any particular test or any particular level or anybody else that's immaterial um, it is about you and your horse coming, carrying on. And, uh, you know, part of why I've been asked, why don't you do tests and stuff like that and give people little, I don't know, stickers for well done or whatever. And um, because, you know, as a business, that's probably wise. But I just don't want to do it. I think it's counterproductive in that particular e uh, element to try and put people in a, a ranking between one another. And um, I'm not a very egalitarian person politically at all, actually. I'm quite a royalist myself. However, yeah, not that everybody has to agree. But the point being that I don't like that in a teaching point of view. Uh, because we're just looking for understanding. And we would like to have discourse. We would like to feel that people can ask questions. That people can um, question a paradigm that people, you know, that takes a bit of effort, but it can be done. And um, you can, especially dogma, let's, let's, let's challenge dogma, which is not quite the same as paradigm. And um, that is important that you respect your students as you want to be respected as a teacher. And that breeds a certain necessity for peerness, which is not a word, but never mind. Mm. <laughs> but I understood what you meant. Yeah, so, so, so it's, um, especially in a teaching point of view, sure, somebody needs to be open to try what you suggest. If you just make a point of doing the opposite of what you're told, then obviously you're not going to understand what they're talking about. But then you have destroyed the discourse. And you need to allow somebody to make a suggestion 
to understand what the suggestion is about, to be able to make up your mind whether you like it or not, or whether it's true or not. Or, um, And I try to do this in lessons, is to let the horse show if I'm right or wrong. I, I, I think I try to do that. And... Um, and it's also is good for me because sometimes I think I think they should be doing this. Is the horse agreeing? Am I right or am I wrong? And then if I can more or less empirically is a big word, but in that sort of vein of empirical uh, establishing what is right or wrong, uh, we can perhaps check up on ourselves in a constructive yet fluid manner. Mm. And this is why... Uh, yeah, why I think it's very important to have this concept of, of equality in a way. Does that make sense? As in qual equality um, between horse and rider or between yeah. uh, us as riders or? All. Uh, just within all of that. Um, yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of weird because <laughs> we're not the same. I, I'm not a horse. Yet... That doesn't mean we need to value each other in different ways. Uh, we can very much embrace the fact that a horse has four feet and I have two. I am perfectly happy with that difference. Yet, um, empower each other anyway, within our own identity. Isn't that what we all want? Yeah, it is. Brilliant, Arne. So, the next time you come back to Norway, if either of us two or three days after this talk, have thought, you know, damn, we should have talked about this and that. Then we will be back again. No, oh, I'd love to. Yeah. I'm sure you'll think of something. <laughs> should be hard. Thanks a lot, Arne. Yeah. go? You just heard episode 29 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. I want to thank my guest, Arne Kutz, my composer, Fredrik Blom, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.